Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. In mid-September, I was sitting next to the journalist Sally Hayden, attending a press briefing near the United Nations when her phone started buzzing with WhatsApp messages. Refugees and migrants stranded in a prison in Libya had gotten her number and were sending her messages describing the deplorable conditions of their confinement. Sally Hayden is a freelance journalist, and as she explains, thousands of refugees and migrants, mostly from Eastern and Sub-Saharan Africa, are languishing indefinitely in prison in Libya after having been captured by Libyan Coast Guard units as these would-be refugees tried to make their way to Italy. These would-be refugees are now prisoners in areas rife with conflict. They're left without food or water, often subject to torture. It is an ongoing human rights calamity that gets very little attention. And so I was extremely glad to have Sally Hayden on the show to discuss her reporting. The best way to follow Sally Hayden's work is on Twitter, and I'll post a link to her handle on globaldispatchespodcast.com. She also asked me to ask you to send her any questions via Twitter you have about her reporting. And on her Twitter page, she'll also often uh, post screen caps of the messages she receives from people stranded in prison in Libya. It's, it's very important, I think, to uh, to read those and to understand what's going on. And I was very, very glad to have Sally on the show to discuss her reporting. So here is my conversation with journalist Sally Hayden. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. I remember sitting next to you at these press briefings and, you know, your your WhatsApp would, would buzz with these messages from individual migrants and refugees stranded in, in these detention centers in, in Libya. I, I guess, how is it that you came to the story or maybe more specifically, how is it that they came to you? So last, I mean, I report on a, a lot on migration issues and refugee issues across Um, Europe, Middle East and Africa. And last year I reported in Sudan um, and did kind of a series of different reports looking at various issues. Um, And one of them particularly became quite well known among refugees there, which was looking at alleged corruption in the UNHCR resettlement program. And as a result of that, a lot of refugees got in touch with me just generally to speak about the situation there. Um, And so in August, it was actually August 26th, I still remember, 
a Sunday, I was at home in London and I got this message from a man who said that his brother was in Sudan and his brother had given him my number and he was actually in Libya in a detention center. And what he said was that a war had broken out around them and they really desperately needed some help. And obviously, you know, I'm a I'm a journalist, but I'm sitting at home in London kind of going, can this be real? Like, do I take this seriously? What's going on? And um, I, I just talked to him all day through WhatsApp, just asked him to send me selfies, send me GPS locations, send me more information. I have some contacts in Libya who I could cross-check that information with. And they all told me that what he was saying appeared to be true, that there was a detention center where he said that it wasn't accessible, that there was fighting happening around it. And um, yeah, from, from there, I kind of, after about 24 hours, I was like, okay, it seems like this is a real story. Uh, yeah, what happened was that they had been abandoned by the guards left without food and water. Um, men, women and children and they were sending me pictures of people with kind of huge weapons patrolling outside and smoke rising around them and them just absolutely terrified um, having no idea what to do so from from there then my number over the past two months has just been passed around a lot of different migrants and refugees in different detention centres and, and I've now got contact in in quite a few of them. And and I know the most recent story of, of yours that I read was recently an article that I believe appeared in the Irish Times about a Somali man who set himself on fire in one of these detention centers. C- can you, wh- like, what do we know about who that man was or, or is if, if he managed to, to live? So he actually died. And it, I mean, it's obviously incredibly distressing for for everybody. Um, so I got a message on Wednesday last week saying that a man had just had set himself on fire and had died. He had got petrol. Um, and what I was told by the refugees who saw it happen was that he had been told by visiting UNHCR officials that he had little chance at evacuation. And essentially what they will want at this stage is just to be evacuated to a safe country and he apparently just told people afterwards he felt so hopeless that he didn't know what else to do. Um, yeah, set himself on fire and and sadly died. He was 28 from Somalia, and he also had a wife in the center. So what do we know about why is it or and how is it that individuals end up in these prisons in, in Libya? I mean, most individuals here, it sounds like, are people from sub-Saharan Africa, or, or the Horn of Africa, who are trying to make it to Europe, but somehow wind up in jail cells in, in Libya? Like, what, what's the, the path? Like, how does this happen? So in February 2017, there was a deal done between Italy and Libya, which basically, where basically Italy said that they were going to fund the Libyan Coast Guard to what they called rescue migrants and refugees trying to escape. But what's you know, it's kind of turned out to also be interceptions um, to stop them from escaping. And this deal has been heavily criticized because the Coast Guard is kind of known or suspected to have ties with the smugglers who also make their money from shipping people to Libya. And um, and also there's been like a lot of documented incidences of abuse where they either shoot at people in boats or they 
fail to rescue them or they abandon them. Um, so that's that's essentially the deal that was done. So since then, tens of thousands of people who have tried to escape to Italy have been intercepted or or rescued, as they call it, and brought back to Libya. And pretty much all of them get put in detention centers. So they're then put in indefinite detention in incredibly difficult um, conditions where and they don't necessarily have any way out. So one of the ways is that IOM will help them return to their country of origin. But this is for the, a lot uh, the of International the, Organization for Migration, the IOM. Yeah, exactly. Um, we'll, we'll help them return to their country of origin. But for a lot of the people who are there, particularly, you know, people from Darfur, people from Eritrea, some of the Ethiopians, Somalis, they feel that they can't return to their countries and that they're genuine refugees. And so they have nowhere to go. And so basically, I mean, the IOM says that they, they will sort of repatriate them. But if you're an Eritrean, you're, you're, you know, you're fleeing this oppressive government that will imprison and, and torture you if you return. So there's, there's no good option there. Uh, under normal circumstances, though, wouldn't they be able to apply for like refugee status? Uh, and what's that process been? Well, I mean, Libya isn't, you know, a functioning country. I think it's very fair to say it is a war zone. And and particularly the fighting that broke out in August and September made that very, very clear that it's not a safe place to be. So refugees can't, like, even if they claim refugee status, they're like, they, you know, they don't want to be there. So that doesn't work. Um, what is kind of supposed to happen is that there are meant to be resettlement places available. And so uh, UNHCR, the UN Refugee Agency, registers them and then will help or will try and find resettlement places. But um, countries essentially just aren't stepping up to provide those places, which means that the people who are there are just trapped. And so there have been a few evacuations to um, to Niger for, you know, for resettlement from there or to um, Romania recently, where they can then do the processing and then find a new space for them. But, um, but yeah, that that process has just been incredibly slow. Um, yeah, I mean, it's worth pointing out, like the number of available spots for resettlement around the world for refugees in this kind of situation are extremely limited. Now, even more so since the United States is now at an historic low of the number of refugees they'll accept, and and several other countries have also fallen suit and reduced their number of of refugees that they're willing to to resettle do we know like how many people generally are stuck in this kind of no man's land these prisons in 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 libya i mean for me specifically i'm just looking at the people in what are called the official detention centers run by um libya's department of combating illegal migration which is what it's called and so I'm just looking at people who have tried to get to sea and then been returned. So I think at the moment there's about 4,500 in those detention centers. Mm. Then, of course, there are people in unofficial ones. And, and the detention centers, you know, like it, it's kind of either widely suspected or, or you know, proven that uh, many of them are being run by people who are also involved with militias or smuggling gangs you know, refugees say that they're regularly, people are sold out to kind of smugglers who torture them for ransom or they're sold into forced labor 
Um, you know, so it, it's not as clear cut as them being held by the government. It's it's all kind of a very fluid situation where you can't be certain who to trust. And and these detention centers themselves, I mean, seem like just incredibly desperately awful places. I remember I had the head of MSF, uh, Doctors Without Borders, on the podcast maybe like last year, and Joanne Liu, Liu, and and she was, uh, you know, somehow it was got we were talking about like places that she's seen that are particularly awful and and she had recently visited one of these detention centers in um Libya and got like really emotional and and just got like said it was like the one place she's ever been to in her life as head as MSF that was the bleakest worst most awful place that she's ever seen uh which i, I think adds some some context to um what we're talking about and the circumstances that people here find themselves in yeah, I mean, the really kind of strange and surprising thing for me has been like the fact that these people managed to reach out for me. Actually, they're not supposed to have phones. And the way that they're contacting me is on phones that have been very carefully hidden and are being charged or are being uh, loaded up with credit from outside. And I know that some of the people I'm speaking to have said that there have been sweeps of the detention centers where the guards try to confiscate them. And the reason that they're doing that is because they don't want information about the conditions to get out. And and unfortunately, that means that the rest of the world just doesn't know what's happening to these people. And as you said, like uh, the conditions are so horrendous. Um, like somebody was messaging me last night. They said that there are like several hundred of them just being kept in a dark room. They don't have any windows they don't get food like maybe once a day they'll get past it if they're lucky and that'll just be white pasta with nothing else in it. Um, sometimes they'll be, you know, once every three days. I've spoken to people recently who went eight days without food. Um, they drink toilet water. That's something that I found out is happening in multiple centers that they just won't be given any water. So they end up drinking water from the toilets. Um, a lot of detainees have TB, tuberculosis. And the reason that that's spreading so much is because they're being kept in very cramped circumstances with without, you know, any space, without any fresh air. And they're being forced to share rooms with people who are infected. And so it's spreading among them. Um, the other shocking thing is that nobody knows how many people are dying in these centers. And in one center, Zintan, I've been told by detainees there that four people have died in, the, in I think, since mid-September. So it was in a month from mid-September and everybody that I've been asking to try and even confirm these deaths they just say nobody's keeping track of of the number that are dying Um, in another center I was told seven people have died this year all from kind of conditions that were either caused or exacerbated by the the way that they were being held and particularly from TB and then of course we have the suicide of this Somali man so yeah, I mean, it's it's really horrendous. And, and then on top of that, obviously, you have the fact that some of the guards beat them or um, abused them. I've heard cases of women being raped by guards. And yeah, like, you know, those are the people who they're reliant on for food. So they, you know, they just have to put up with all this. And I might be misremembering this, but did you not maybe when I was when I was with you in in New York in September get messages about a woman who gave birth in the center? Yeah, in one center, um, Abu Salim, I think there have now been two births, 
one of them, one of the women was taken to a hospital, but one of them just gave birth in the middle of the hall, um, kind of surrounded by a lot of other refugees, like hundreds of them. And um, yeah, I had a baby girl. So, I mean, they were kind of like, yeah, I, I was sent pictures of the baby. She was so beautiful. But as a place to give birth, it's obviously not great and I think the week after that they went five days without food that whole center so you know to have a newborn baby and a and a mother and then go five days without food it's pretty horrific as well so so you mentioned earlier that these abuses and, and this abusive situation is exacerbated and really caused by this deal between the government of Italy and the Libyan Coast Guard um in which um you know, the, the Libyan Coast Guard is intercepting and then detaining uh, would-be refugees and, and migrants. Has there been like a broader EU-wide sort of policy response to what Italy is doing? Yeah, I mean, I, I think at this stage, like it is, it is approved by the EU. Um, and the EU is, is kind of, yeah, both approving it and you know, and and um, also then you have this crackdown on rescue ships, like NGO rescue ships. So not only is there the policy of funding the Coast Guard and supporting the Coast Guard, but they also are um, both kind of trying to, yeah, trying to stop the rescue ships from operating. And um, most recently, I think we had the case of the MSF, the Aquarius ship which was denied a flag after Italy put pressure on Panama to revoke its flag, which means that it can't sail. Um, and yeah, this, this is obviously, you know, it's, it's all approved by the EU. It's not like this is happening separately to the EU and the EU, if they knew about it, wouldn't agree with it. But, but this was like a decision of like Italy is kind of right wing government. No, this was done before the. It happened before. before. The okay, so yeah. so it's a a bipartisan um, human rights abuse. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I, I guess, like, what's to be done about this? I mean, what what can be done? I mean, is, is the policy response here just to like pressure Italy to revoke its deal with with Libya? I mean, personally, I'm a journalist. I'm not an activist, and. I don't really know the answer to this situation and I don't, yeah, I, like I can't say what's, what can be done or what people should do. But what I do know is that the information that's coming out at the moment is not showing the full picture of the implications of this. And I've heard European politicians talking about how the new policy is saving lives because they call these rescues. And actually, you know, once, once people get sent back to, you know, indefinite detention in really horrific conditions that that I hadn't really come across happening in other places, you know, that weren't terrible dictatorships were, were um, you know, like, were, like in other situations, these people would be, would be given some sort of help and instead they're being abandoned and nobody even seems to know the full implications of this policy in terms of deaths or in terms of, um, yeah, abuses. So I, mean, I, I don't yeah. know what I don't know what should happen, but I'm I've just been so surprised that this isn't being paid attention to more. Well, it's just like such a tough situation because I mean it's an incident in which like the the transit country is the one in which 
you know, where the war zone is, is, is happening, you know, that's kind of odd. And it's not, I think, a, a contingency against which sort of refugee conventions were ever, I think, imagined to contend with. Yeah. And I think it's worth also pointing out that, you know, people kind of say, well, why did they go there? Or, you know, aren't these people stupid to have gone to Libya in the first place? Like a lot of the people that I speak to, they were held by smugglers for about two years, a year or two. And so what happens normally is the smugglers, if they catch them, they torture them. They make the families pay massive ransoms of between kind of $2,000 and $10,000. And they only got released. They basically get released to go to sea after the families managed to raise the money. So th- when they came to Libya, either by choice or because they just couldn't stay where they were, they, you know, their route was still open. Like they thought that it was possible that they'd get to Italy. And by the time they emerged from kind of awful torture by smugglers, they then ended up in a situation where they they can't go back and they can't go forward. Well, thank you so much for your time and and for your work on the story. Yeah, you're a very good questioner. Very incisive. (laughs) Thank you. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Sally for her reporting and for speaking with me. Uh, as I said at the outset, I was very glad to be able to shine the, the spotlight on this issue. And yeah, it's just a really god-awful situation. Uh, and you should follow Sally's reporting for more on this and other excellent reporting, frankly, on, on other refugee issues around the world. All right. We'll see you later. Bye. Oh, and of course, as always, a big thank you to the University of Manchester's Global Development Institute for their ongoing support of the show. We will have another episode from an expert from Manchester's Global Development Institute coming in a future episode very shortly. Bye. Bye.